Good morning and welcome. My name is Joe Adigbola. At, three years ago at this event, we announced AWS Batch to the world. It's been a wild and wacky three years. Um, and a lot of the development in the service today has been driven by diversification in workloads that you are bringing to AWS Batch. Today, we're going to update you on where we are at with Batch and some new releases. And then we're really, really proud to have Matt from Uber ATG here talk to us about how they are using AWS Batch for autonomous vehicle simulation. So as with AWS Batch, AWS itself is seeing a huge diversification of workloads. And this is really driving us to innovate and provide additional features and services and categories of workloads, uh, support for categories of workloads that you can um, use to uh, place your workloads in the cloud. We've added additional capabilities with improved and increased speeds on uh, Intel's uh, chips. And we've added uh, accelerated computing and enhanced networking offerings uh, to also help uh, with additional workloads. With over 270 different instance types today, the ability to bring new workloads and meet new business needs is greater than ever. But as the diversification increases, we continue to invest in this space and we will continue to do so because we expect that trend to continue. So I don't know about all of you, while choice is awesome, uh, sometimes it can be a little bit overwhelming. And when we originally launched AWS Batch, we did so because customers were telling us that in some cases, they were plugging together 20 plus different AWS services in order to launch um, a batch workload. That's a lot of undifferentiated heavy lifting for results in your batch workload. So batch as a service, and as it was when we launched and as it is today, is a set of batch primitives that are going to not only allow you to schedule and place workloads onto instances, but it's also going to handle the scaling up selection and scaling down of instances on your behalf. It's going to help you remove that undifferentiated heavy lifting of getting your workflow running in the first place. So <clears throat> because it's a native AWS service, you are going to, from your own code bases, have full access to the suite of AWS services from within your codes. This gives you a great deal of flexibility and openness. Um, Batch is going to provision those resources on your behalf based on business rules that you provide to us, um, the specifications of the jobs that you may have. Um, and it's also going to allow you to take advantages of things like spot, um, should you uh, feel that that's the best thing for your business. So looking at who's using Batch today, we're going to hear about the use case of autonomous vehicles from Matt in just a second. Um, but we have many, many uh, different areas and segments that are using AWS Batch. Um, so one example would be Western Digital, who uses AWS Batch today to simulate energy-assisted recording technology. AWS Batch allows them to easily shrink the simulation time down from 20 days to just eight hours, dramatically improving the time to results. Matterport uses AWS Batch 
um, to process thousands of 3D models for their customers on a daily basis, tens of thousands even, and they bring down the creation time for their containerized application uh, environment from more than a year to just a few months. And then in the life sciences uh, space, Cubic uses AWS Batch to analyze genomics data. Um, for example, gene expression differences between deceased and normal tissues. Um, and the automation and orchestration provided by AWS Batch uh, potentially cuts their research by 50%. So these are all really great examples of Batch. Um, if you're interested in learning more about them, they are available on AWS on our case uh, portal. Um, so please feel free to go read about them. Um, but the big trend is you all continue to surprise us with new and innovative ways of using AWS Batch. This really drives our roadmap, and we really encourage you to reach out and let us know what you're doing, uh, because that helps us really continue to develop the service and make it the best thing that we can make for you. So let's look at a typical batch uh, architecture. In this case, it's image transformation. Um, the very first component that you're going to think about when uh, setting up a batch job is to use the job definition. This job definition is really the nuts and bolts. It's your application image itself, uh, any configuration, any data that you may need, and any permissions that you may want to use for accessing services within batch or even external to batch. So in this case, um, with an image, this image may be submitted manually, it may come down from a satellite feed and drop into an S3 bucket. It, once in that S3 bucket, you can configure a Lambda function to automatically pro process this image as it comes in and place it into the batch queue. Once jobs are submitted to the batch queue, they're going to sit there until there are resources available for them to run. Um, the scheduler is going to be constantly evaluating the job definition of each of those jobs in the job queue to see what kinds of instances are going to be appropriate uh, to run those instances on, the availability of those instances within the compute environment, and um, also just how many there are so that it knows how many uh, instances you may need. Uh, it's going to be looking at things like uh, vCPU, uh, the GPU requirements, and obviously the, the number of them for each case. So once they're in the queue, they're going to run in approximately the order in which they arrive. Um, as we'll talk about a little bit later, um, jobs can have job dependencies. So assuming all jobs prior have uh, met their dependencies, the, the in order is mostly there. And you can um, obviously uh, choose uh, which instances you would want those to run on. So if we move them across, um, the scheduler is assessing that job queue. It's found enough jobs uh, that make sense to spin up an instance or multiple instances. Um, the compute environment is another measure for you to really say uh, what is right for your business. How, do you want a, a warming pool of sorts with a minimum number of vCPUs available? Um, so you always have some available, so it's very quick to get going. Um, do you want a maximum vCPU where you're going to cap how many instances you would have running? Those types of things are available to you to, to you to set up. You may want to be very specific about what instance type you want to run on, um, or just specify a, an instance family. And if that is all too, too much and you don't want to do that at all, um, Batch's intelligence scheduler can use the job definition file to choose on your behalf, in which case you would choose the type optimal. 
So once the instances are all available and spun up, Batch is going to place those onto those instance types on your behalf. It's going to pack them intelligently onto the right instances so they're as efficient as possible. And one of the other benefits is the complexities of where those are going to be placed is done for you. So you can have jobs of many different types in the job queue at once. And this batch scheduler is really going to choose where is the best place to put those jobs at any one time, according to the parameters you set. So those jobs are going to execute. They're going to run. And when they complete, we receive a, a job uh, return code. That return code to the scheduler informs the scheduler that now there's a slot for the next job to move. It's going to reassess what's in the job queue. And uh, it will continue that process until there's no jobs of that type left or no jobs at all. And then it will start to spin down the instances that are no longer used or needed on your behalf. So with that, I'm going to hand over now to Steve, who's going to walk you through some of the latest releases on AWS Batch. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Joe. How's the sound? Can you hear me OK? All right, awesome. Uh, I'm Steve Kendricks. I am the Senior Technical Product Manager for AWS Batch. Um, I'm going to walk you through a little bit of how, um, right, so Joe kind of talked you through, hey, here are the key components of Batch, here's what our customers are doing. I want to kind of bring out some of the new innovations we brought to Batch recently in the past year. I'm also going to talk a little bit about the machine learning use case for AWS Batch and how that applies to what Matt will talk about um, with the Uber Advanced Technologies Group use case. Right. One thing that Joe talked about is the ability for Batch to scale up instances on your behalf. Right. The idea here is that AWS Batch will manage your scale for you. Right. Based on your workflow requirements, you shouldn't have to think about the instances. Right. And we're continually getting better at doing that. One of the key things that we've done uh, about a month and a half ago is to launch what we're calling allocation strategies, right? Batch originally had a single behavior when launching instances, and we called it essentially a best fit allocation strategy. What best fit means is that we would launch the least number of instances on your behalf, right, to run the jobs in your queue. And what that means, right, and that's valuable for a few reasons. The first is so that we can increase uh, your uh, utilization, right? If we can have a single instance where we can pack a lot of jobs onto it, right, that reduces spin up and spin down time, we can then continue and in increase throughput as well, right, and reduce cost by including as many jobs as possible on a single instances and keep replacing those instances, right? We do want to give you the least number of instances. And this was really good for most customers, right? Batch would do a cost optimization. It would give you a, essentially we would do our own calculation. We would turn a list and we say, great, let's give the customer the instance that is going to charge them the least for their workloads. Um, however, some customers came to us, especially customers like Matt and said, well, that's awesome. But one thing that we like to use is spot. And one thing that we, what, what this behavior does is it will pick a single instance type and it will sit there and it'll say, I know I need this instance type. I'm going to wait for that capacity because I don't want to charge the customer anymore. What customers like Matt did is push us to kind of expand what Batch can do and think about, right? And make cost and throughput trade-off decisions, right? So we launched two new allocation strategies that let customers scale out a little bit more reliably when using AWS Batch, especially in the spot market, right? So we, use, we launched Spot Capacity Optimized, which if you are familiar with Spot's Capacity Optimized allocation strategy, it's very similar to that, right? AWS Batch will receive, right, will receive the inputs. Either you will say, hey, you know, Batch just 
give me the optimal mix of instances, right? You figure out what batch to launch, or if you have specific instance requirements, you can tell batch, I only want these particular instances, and batch will sort through those. It will still say, great, I want, I want to launch these instances for the customer. However, when using spot capacity optimized, batch will take a look at the spot market, right? We're gonna take a look at the spot market. We'll communicate with our underlying services in AWS. We'll say, here are the mix of instances where we can find the deepest capacity pool in spot, right? What that lets you do is say, if I need, maybe, maybe I like to run on C5 18XLs, I also can run on M5 24XLs or a C4, right? What that lets you do is it really lets you diversify. And so if I say, well, great, this mix of C4 and this, and this mix of C5 and M is really what's gonna provide the customer the deepest capacity, right? That gets you the benefit overall of reducing the amount of spot reclaims that you're going to experience, right? And so what that means is, of course, overall, as you're trying to scale out, it lets you experience much higher growth, right? So customers before, right, were able to reliably launch 100,000 vCPUs, right? Now we can start looking at millions of vCPUs because we can now reach across multiple and many different instance families. Right? We also release, and that's great in the spot market, and we do recommend that any customer using batch with spot use spot capacity optimized. We also launched for on-demand, right? We also launched a similar feature called best fit progressive, right? I already explained how best fit worked, right? It launched the least number of instances, right? That can fit the jobs in your queue in most cases, right? With best fit progressive, what we do is we still create that list and say, listen, let's get the lowest cost or the best fit instance for your workload. However, in the case, maybe even in the case of a spot reclaim, right, if I know that I want that M424 or M524X large, but I can still run an M512X large, right, batch is going to launch that M524X large. We think it's the best. If there's a capacity limitation, for example, we will then start launching those additional instance types and progressively sort through the list for you. The best thing about this is you don't have to think about any of it. All you need to do is essentially say, Here's the instances I want to run, or even batch figure it out for me. And here's how I want to run. I, I, I want to maximize my spot capacity. Batch will handle everything else for you. How we tie this together, right? Joe introduced the concept of submitting jobs, right? So let's say a user here has a job that is submitted to their appropriate queue, right? I then have two compute environments, right? This is a very common use case. Right? Uh, you obviously don't, aren't restricted to this, I'm just showing you one example, but let's example, this example says, right, listen, maybe I'm running maybe a financial risk analytics firm, I need to have, and I, and I say, I need a certain level of throughput, right? I know I need a certain level of throughput that I want to achieve, I want that in on demand, right? So I have 100 jobs that take one vCPU each, I'm gonna restrict this top compute environment, this on demand compute environment, to where I think that level of throughput is. So I'm gonna launch 100 jobs, 100 vCPUs worth of jobs into that compute environment. I'm gonna cap that on-demand compute environment at 100 vCPUs. I'll use a best fit progressive allocation strategy. And then after that, I can spill over into the spot market and every additional instance that spins up, right? If, if my users come in and it's over 100, right, where I expect that kind of low level of, of throughput that I really, really need to make sure my business is running comes through and users say, no, we're gonna submit 400 or I'm gonna submit 10,000 jobs today, right? The rest of those jobs is then gravy. I can, I can save, you know, 70, 80% in the spot market, right? And batch will manage that for me. And because right after that, all I really care about is that capacity, I'm going to use spot capacity optimized strategy, right? 
so let's talk about, right, so I talked about some of the things. I have a few more um, kind of newer releases to talk about. Let's, but I want to tie it and bring some of these things together. How does this fit together for machine learning and for simulations? Right, one of the things very often that we see customers need, especially in the machine learning workload, or machine learning workloads, is the need to express uh, workflows, the need to have dependencies, the need to build pipelines, right? And AWS Batch is a great fit for the batch scheduler component of that workspace, right? What AWS Batch allows you to do is kind of express dependencies based on workflow need and not have to manage instances, right? So if, for example, let's assume that I submit all of these jobs at the same time to AWS Batch. I have a setup job, I have a heavy network IO step, I have GPU intensive step, I have a memory intensive step, and then after that I have some analysis and some cleanup to do. What Batch will let you do is submit all of this at the same time. I express dependencies on the jobs on each other, right? So the job setup job comes in. Batch says, great, I'm going to spin up an instance. I'm going to run this job. I'm going to hold all these other jobs, right? I'm going to hold job B, C, D, E, and F in pending, right? When job A is finished, Batch is automatically going to move job B, right? The array job, if you're familiar with the concept of, of array jobs, Batch will move array job B into runnable. We're going to launch instances appropriate to that job requirements, right? VCP memory requirements, right? And the good thing here is as job B is running, it, it has an end-to-end -end dependency, or I should say job C has an end-to-end -end dependency on job B, right? So as B0 finishes, job C starts, right? We're going to spin up an instance, a GPU instance for job C, right? Or C0, right? And, we, and if B99 finishes first, we can launch C99. Right, and so the whole thing is you only get the instances, you get those compute instances for the workload type that you need when you need them, right? You don't need to pay for, for example, memory intensive steps while you're sitting there waiting. Batch will spin up the memory intensive when it's time for the memory intensive jobs to run and only when it's time for them to run. You don't have to worry about having memory intensive instances sitting there being unutilized while your heavy network and IO step is running, right? And after that, we can submit some jobs. We, we already have those jobs submitted in the queue, and after that, they just automatically run when the dependencies are finished, right? One thing that we launched last year is multi-node parallel jobs, right? This is another way for Batch to manage your instances. A multi-node parallel job is important for those tightly coupled workloads if you think distributed deep learning, or you think MPI, right? This is something that you'd be familiar with. Uh, an MMP job is a single job spread across multiple instances, or as we call them in this case, a node, right? A node, and as you add nodes, right, it's important to keep adding and, and having a tightly coupled network with low latency, right? Because as you add nodes, of course, the communication needs to be between all of the nodes in the cluster. Batch will manage this for you, right? We'll spin these up when you submit your multi-node parallel job. Batch is going to spin up instances, right, all or nothing, right? And when you have these clusters, right, I say, you say, I need 100 instances, or I need 100 nodes, all at the same time. I need 1,000 nodes, all at the same time. I need 32 nodes, all at the same time. But what I can't use is I can't use 31, right? That doesn't do me any good. I need all 32. When Batch spins up a multi-node parallel job, we make sure we spin them all up at the same time for you. And if there's a capacity limitation, we make sure you're not charged for that intervening time, right? Or we, but also what we don't do is we don't spin up 10 and then we spin up 
the 20, and then we spin up 31, and then we spin up 32, we spin up all 32, right? And, and that's there to save you money. We also are integrated with the elastic fabric adapter, which is a, essentially a custom-built um, low-latency interconnect between instances. Again, as we said, as we add nodes to this network, right, the latency then begins to build up, and it's important to have a low-level interconnect between the nodes to make sure that um, right, to make sure that latency is reduced, right? GPU scheduling, we launched GPU scheduling earlier this year, and what that allows you to do is express your jobs in the terms of the GPUs that it requires, right? So we accept P and G family instances, but essentially you say, I need to have, right, my job requires three GPUs or four GPUs. We will spin up an instance that has four GPUs on it. We will place the job on the instance and pin the GPUs against the container to make sure to prevent oversubscription, right? So if you have uh, maybe two two GPU jobs running on the same host, right? There's no oversubscription of the GPU. Here's how you kind of tie that together, right? For deep neural network training, right? You have, for example, this is just an example instance using uh, P3DNs, but in the, uh, for example, you have your multi-node TensorFlow container application. We will then spin up the P3DNs for you. We'll spin up in a placement group, right? A placement group is essentially a, uh, an AWS artifact to make sure that your instances are located physically close together, right? That reduces latency. Um, and then underneath, you can use a high-performance file system such as FSx for Lustre, which right, is, is, is critical for kind of communicating, in this case, back and forth between, us, or between the nodes and the file system, right? And it takes care of reading and hydrating back and forth between S3. On the right, you see kind of the performance that you can get with AWS Batch. Remember, I talked about kind of latency spikes as you add nodes in the cluster. What you really want to see is a nice linear scaling of, um, of compute, right, as, of performance as you add, for in this case, as you add GPUs, you don't, want, you, don't, you don't want to see kind of performance begin to tail off as you add them, right, as performance demands improve, right, and what you like to see is this nice linear scaling graph. So we have a lot of customers that build, because of the, the tools that Batch provides, we have a lot of customers that build workflow managers on AWS Batch, right, Luigi, Airflow, um, are kind of, kind of what we would consider more general purpose or machine learning specific applications, right? Nextflow is a very popular healthcare and life sciences uh, workflow manager, right? That is uh, built um, and very popular um, with AWS Batch. Lyft um, just a few weeks ago released their flight machine learning platform that um, is that is hosted on Kubernetes, but it essentially uses, or in very large part, can, can use AWS Batch. And just yesterday, Netflix announced their Metaflow uh, machine learning workflow. This is our workflow manager. This is the workflow manager that they use in-house. They just announced yesterday that they will open source Metaflow um, using AWS Batch in large part to scale out applications, right? So you see kind of this growth of machine learning-based workflow managers um, and Many of them are utilizing AWS Batch because of these tools. Um, so I've talked a lot about machine learning. I've talked a lot about simulations, how Batch works. Um, but one of the best things about the job uh, that we have here is the ability to have customers stretch us and push us in interesting ways. They have extremely interesting insights into how Batch works, into how our services work. And they are awesome, the, the most awesome provider of feedback that we can give. 
Um, and I'm very pleased to introduce to you Matt Ranney. He's the senior staff engineer at Uber uh, Advanced Technologies Group um, to discuss his use case and what he's doing with Batch. Thanks. All right, thanks. Can you guys hear me? Great. Okay, cool. So, uh, so I want to talk to you about what I do, which is uh, self-driving cars. And so we're going to take a little detour uh, from AWS Batch. We'll get back there. But um, to, to understand like, how, what we're doing with Batch, um, I want to explain to you a little bit about like, how self-driving car development works. So first off, we take this car. This is our, this is our vehicle platform. It's a Volvo XC90. And it's, uh, it's a little bit, you know, Volvo makes it a little special for us so we can add a bunch of this extra stuff on. Uh, we use the Volvo automatic emergency braking system. But then we add a bunch of additional sensors, like we add radar, and then we add cameras, and then we add LiDAR on the top. That's the thing you see spinning around. Uh, more, more cameras. Um, and then in the back is a pretty hefty uh, compute stack, uh, which has got about five computers back there uh, that, that sort of process all of the, all of the sensor data and, and figure out how to drive the car. And so, so all of that, so we have, we have all of these, like this giant pile of sensors and it's producing a ton of data. And all this data has got to go, goes, you know, into some software. So these are the, the major uh, software modules that, that make up our, our system, other other stacks may be a little bit different, but but this is you know usually, there's usually something like this in in most self-driving stacks, and the amount of software here is tremendous. Uh, this this represents the work of hundreds of engineers, uh, you know, who've been working on this for years. It is it is a very complicated, very large software project, and the output of that, of course, goes to drive the car, like make it make it move through the world. And so what I want to talk to you in general about, like what we use Batch for, is how we test this system. So, so there's, you know, there's, a, there's a compute stack that kind of runs all this stuff, but it's a lot of software and it is complicated. And uh, so, so on board, we, we have some data that uh, you know, we sort of package up the software. So when you, you make a new software release, uh, you package it up into this, this read-only section, uh, which has got a, a, sign, you know, a sort of secure boot firmware, you know, signed operating system, signed uh, binaries. But we also include uh, a bunch of trained models uh, and some HD maps. Uh, HD maps are uh, this sort of high-resolution version of the place where we want to operate the vehicles uh, that gives us very precise uh, localization and other sort of traffic you know, information. Um, or you know, sort of how, how, to, how to act on the road. And there's also a writable area where we log all the sensor data. So whenever the vehicles are driving around, uh, they're always logging all their sensor data. Um, just, just always you know, keeps, keeps, getting, uh, keeps getting written to that uh, writable area. We've got some you know, diagnostics and telemetry as well. But right, so how do you test all this software? Uh, it, is, it is a lot and it is complicated. Now obviously we do the normal stuff that you would do to test software as you write unit tests and we use modern Clang. Uh, it's a, you know, the autonomy software is all written in C++. And so, uh, so you know, there, there are you know, a lot of great tools around there to sort of help the individual modules sort of be, be more robust. Uh, and of course, you know we can we can stick these things together, you know, in some in some ways uh, to make some integration tests. But the really tricky part is if you look at this stack, there is whoop, there it goes 
uh, there's a feedback cycle there. When the software says drive a little bit in some way, that changes the input to the software. And also the real world is kind of moving around and so it's, it is very hard to test this software in isolation. It's, it's very, of course we want to do subsystem testing, but uh, really the only way to understand whether this thing, whether the software is doing the right thing uh, is to test it end to end as a, as a whole system. So uh, to, to help with that, we built this track. So this is, uh, this is a facility uh, near our, our office in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, this is on the site of an old steel mill. Uh, we've, so we've got a whole road network here. Uh, it's all mapped out. The roads are all named after uh, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood because Mr. Rogers was from Pittsburgh. Um, so that's pretty cool. But um, on, so on this track, we can recreate all of the driving scenarios that uh, we, we want to test against, you know, things that we all encounter in the real world. And we can do so repeatably and safely because it's a closed course. And so, so we have, um, you know, so we have a lot of other actors we can bring into the scene. Like we have this little robot guy uh, that can move around, and then we have little robot doors that can open. And you know, so we can, we can, you know, we have a there's a bicycle version version of all this. And so you know, we can re we can test this stuff. We can actually test the software end to end. You know, that's the real software running on a real vehicle uh, in the real world. And you know, so we have a team of, uh, of you know, test, you know, test engineers that like set up these tests. They have their laser triggers and, and they have different, you know, different roamers, the little the, uh, robots, the human or bicycle stand-ins, we call those roamers. You know, we've got ambulances and school buses and city buses and police cars. And you know, we can, we can recreate all of these scenarios on this, on this closed course. And we use this methodology of scenario-based testing. So like there is, a, there is a specific capability we're trying to exercise. And so the team specs out like, oh, this, here's how we want the scenario to work. This is where the interaction happens. This is the, you know, these are all this, this sort of the geometry of, of uh, you know, how we want, uh, how we want a, a scenario to, to be executed. But as you can imagine, uh, this is not, while, while a very accurate and realistic uh, way to test the software, uh, it doesn't have very high throughput. Uh, it takes a lot of time. So these tests run at real time on real vehicles, and there are a lot of scenarios that you want to be that you want to test uh, for every for every new software change. And then you know, as as big as that track is, like there's only so many cars we can fit on it at a time, and so. Uh, but, but importantly, like every developer really wants to test their software individually. Um, like if it takes a day worth of track testing to validate your software, like that's that's pretty bad throughput, right? You would you would like it if every change that you wanted to you know want to land, you could validate something you know validate the performance independently. So then uh, you know you don't have to group your changes uh, together with everybody else's. So that's where we turn to simulation. So simulation is running the software on something that isn't the vehicle. And so there are a couple, uh, two major types of simulation that, that we do. Uh, the one on the top is called hardware in the loop. And that's where we use real vehicle hardware. Either we take the compute stack and we just put it on a test bench, or you know, maybe we take a few of them and we stick them in a rack uh, in a data center. Or uh, at night when the vehicles are docked, uh, we can actually use the real vehicle hardware uh, just you know, re reroute the, the the sensor inputs, uh, and sort of use use these these very um, 
these very, these very powerful but, but unfortunately expensive uh, compute stacks to run the real software. And so this is, hardware in the loop testing is, is great in that it, it, it tests all the sort of integration points. So you can make sure that all the software will work on the actual vehicle hardware. It also uh, is really good for testing how uh, the, the performance, the, the actual performance on the, on the real hardware, whether the tasks are interfering with each other, uh, you know, whether we're getting the latency that we need, et cetera. But unfortunately, it does not scale very well because you have to have actual vehicle hardware, at least, at least a compute stack built up somewhere. So that's why we turn to software in the loop testing. Software in the loop is not the same as, as the vehicle hardware. We use commodity hardware and we also do something, uh, we also run the software differently in that we want to get uh, deterministic results. So when you're, when you're validating a, a change in the software, uh, it is uh, it's very hard to work with the, the randomness of the real world, and you would like to get repeatable results. So to get repeatable results on real hardware is very hard, um, but with uh, software in the loop, we orchestrate the, the order of execution, and so we can make sure that uh, for a given set of inputs, it will always generate uh, the same outputs. But as a side effect, it means that it runs much slower than real time. So software in the loop runs much slower than real time, but good news is we can run thousands of them at the same time. Uh, so there are a couple, a couple types of, of software in the loop simulation that we run. Uh, one is log-based simulation, we call it log sim. So remember when the vehicles are driving around, they're logging all their sensor data. So any, anywhere it goes, all that sensor data is, is saved. And when we, when we bring them into the, to the depots, we offload all these logs. If something interesting happened in one of those scenarios, uh, we can replay that sensor data through a new version of the software. And so these are the, this is the sort of flow through, this, through the software stack, like the sensor data plays through you know, all those components I showed before, uh, but then there's a vehicle model, which is a, a physics simulator that says, okay, based on these controls, like here's where the vehicle actually moved, and then the pose is the, the position and orientation of the vehicle. So we send that back and then the, the, the loop starts over. A log-based simulation is, is interesting in that it, um, it very accurately represents what happened in the real world because it's actual sensor data. So it's replaying the same thing that really happened. There are a number of downsides though, the biggest of which is the, the logged actors, you know, all of the other, all of the other actors in, in a given uh, scene, they only do what they did when the log was created. So, if the, the simulated, you know, the, if the simulation decides to do something a little bit different than what the original log did, uh, actors might just walk right through us or, you know, run, run in the back of us, do, do various impossible things because uh, they're not, you know, they're, they're on rails. So to fix that, uh, we have another type of software simulation called virtual simulation, which is where we use a game engine to make a virtual world and move the actors around. And then we don't quite have all of the sensor data, uh, the fidelity of the sensor data, um, but we still run the rest of the stack and you know, we, we still have this feedback cycle, but at this point it is a truly closed loop simulation uh, because if the simulated, uh, the simulated AV does something different, the actors can, re can react to this new behavior. The big thing uh, with virtual sim is because we control the world, because we have a, because we have a, a game engine that like can, can move actors around in the world, we can parameterize the actor motions 
and do lots of variations of the same kind of, of interaction. So, so here, like here is a, 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 just sort of zooming in on a, on a few of those. But like, you know, we can say like, let's make the, uh, make the pedestrian come out a little bit faster, a little bit slower, let's change our approach speed. Uh, all these kinds of things that, that you can explore if you can parameterize the space. And what, what we find is, in order to be useful, um, we need to run thousands of these simulations to, to explore a parameter space. Um, which is which is why we're here. So uh, this is this is an example of of the output that we get from running a big parameter sweep. So in this in this simulation, we're varying three different things. So there's there are there are three dimensions of, of variability in the in the scenario, and then we can sort of explore the the vehicle's performance, um, ba you know, with a and you can sort of you know slice and dice based on based on what's happening. And this this is just to give you a sense. Each one of those dots represents ten. Uh, you know, 10 individual jobs that are, you know, individual array job elements. Um, and so they're, they're, these, are, these are, you know, large, large uh, batch jobs. So uh, here's an example of, of how, we, how we use these, these large jobs to, to make the software better, uh, to sort of you know, tighten the loop of, of, of writing the software. Um, this is an inter intersection in Pittsburgh where, where we want to drive. And so, Right there, you see a stop sign. This is what we call an unprotected right turn. So we want to be able to turn right there, but there's no stop sign for the vehicles coming from the left. So, so we want to drive there, and we haven't driven there yet. And so uh, we want to make sure that if we do drive there, that the software will do the right thing. So we recreated this, this intersection in the simulation, and then we, started doing, then we did parameter sweeps of oncoming traffic. And uh, this we only swept, uh, swept in two dimensions. But there's, we found an interesting thing, which is this should have been uh, super easy because these are, these are not challenging scenarios. Uh, but if, the, if you look at that little red square there, we found like in a couple of cases, it didn't actually do the right thing. Uh, and so it sort, of, it sort of looks like this, which is like, we're hanging out, we're thinking like, maybe we should yield to that thing. And then due to a bug, uh, so that's unfortunate, but uh, we never would have found that if it wasn't for simulation, if it wasn't for large-scale simulation uh, with parameter sweeps. Like, it would take forever to recreate those exact conditions on the track or in the real world. Uh, but with simulation, we can just run another one of these things and just make sure we fixed it. So here's another, here's another motivating example. Um, this, is, this is a really tricky problem where a uh, pedestrian runs uh, on, a, on a red light, uh, against uh, against uh, oops, against a, a bus and you can't see through the bus she can't see us we can't see her uh, it's a pretty tricky problem and so in order to make sure that we can always handle this problem we recreated at the track of course and we can do variations at the track you know so we have uh, we have laser triggers and you know they, they there's code you can write for these things and so we can you know we can sort of do crude parameter sweeps uh, at the track of course in real time and you know, make sure that make sure that we you know we think we handle it on the you know order of, of tens of variations, but to really make sure that we handle it, uh, we have to create this scenario in our in our virtual world. And so this is this is an example of the of the, the editor tool. And so the person you can add a bus, and then you can you know put the put the AV in there, and then start adding actors and sweep parameters around. And it's it is it is really just absolutely essential. Uh, to be able to do these these simulations and, and large parameter sweeps um, to to validate the software.
Okay, so that's why we're doing simulation is uh, you know to to test you know test our, our our autonomy software, and we're doing it in AWS using Batch obviously, uh, and this is an ideal workload for this type of thing um, because the demand is not predictable. It is it is uh, jobs are launched when engineers have new software they want to test. So a new, you know, that, that maybe that lines up with the working hours of the day. You know, it tends to be people don't land too much software at night um, or on the weekends or holidays, but, but you know, like it, it is also unpredictable because you don't know who's going to land, you know, want to test what changes uh, whenever. So, uh, so a very, very irregular demand and the, the sizes of these tests are, uh, you know, they, they, vary, they vary wildly and they, you know, they, re they represent uh, what, would it, what would be equivalently, you know, thousands of uh, real vehicles at impractical scale to do, to do in the real world. Uh, because some, you know, some of these tests are, are 100,000 and we're not there yet, but um, our, our engineers are asking us to be able to run a million. So like a million, you know, Batch can't do this and neither can our, neither can our simulation infrastructure, but uh, this is where we want to get. Um, this is, you know, so, some of these problems require uh, really, really large um, explorations of the, of the parameter space. This is in a, uh, just a quick graph of, of our compute environments um, that, that Batch feeds into. Uh, you can see, like, on the weekend, that's that little that low point on the right. Uh, people are still running some stuff. Some people are working on the weekends. But then come Monday morning, it cranks right back up again and, you know, uh, that's how that works. So we have, uh, I'm going to take you through some of the, some of the infrastructure pieces, you know, some of the pieces we've built to work with Batch. And the first thing that we've done is we made a thing that we call deployments, which are uh, implemented with some cloud formation and you know, a, little bit of, a little bit of tooling that we wrote. And the idea is that every developer should have their own environment uh, in which to work. So if you, uh, if you want to uh, make some changes, uh, you should be able to do so without, without impacting anybody else. So, so every engineer can have their own, you know, their own testing environment where they can, they can play around without you know, worrying about breaking anything. But we've also got um, you know, sort of staging and production environments. What you get out of each deployment is a sort of namespaced version of, or, or in some cases, uh, an entirely separate version of. You get two Aurors, apparently. Um, due to a typo, um, but uh, but yeah, so so it's it's a way of of just uh, making uh, allowing developers to make changes safely uh, without stepping on each other. But also, um, and this is this has been uh, my favorite part is it's also how we deploy the software. Is each deployment is wired up to load balancer, and so when we um, like when we roll out software, what we'll do is first we'll make a new deployment of it. And we will have this, you know, have this staged up and ready to go. And when we want to release it, we flip the we flip the load balancer to just point at the new, the new deployment. And if we want to roll back, we can just flip it flip it back. And uh, this is this has worked out really well for us. So we wrote a lot of a lot of software around around Batch to kind of make all of this all of this stuff work. And I'll take you through some of the some of the pieces here. Uh, there's there's a web UI which is the sort of the, the user interface that you know the engineers look at. Um, there's also the API. The, the UI uses that, but there are some command line tools that talk directly to the UI uh, or to the API. Sorry, the the web UI is in Fargate. Uh, the the API server is also in Fargate. 
We use Aurora for a database, and when we, when we launch each uh, job, uh, or, well, each simulation, uh, there's, uh, there's kind of this top-level concept we call an evaluation, which is like a group of a bunch of simulations. Each evaluation gets this thing called the tracker, which is kind of a, a meta batch. So I'll get into that more in a, in a little bit. Inside of the container, we've got a few other, a few other components. Finally is the system under test, uh, system under test down there. That's the, the actual autonomy software. And inside the container is also the, this, this sim engine. We have, uh, we have a bunch of different compute environments. Uh, like, so just in prod, like log sim and virtual sim uh, use different instance types. They have different resource requirements. And so we use different compute environments for that. We try to do all of the work uh, on spot if we can get capacity. Um, hopefully, the new allocation strategies uh, will help us more, more reliably get that capacity. Uh, we're excited about that. Uh, we also are doing a little bit of work with uh, GPU instances, some experiments uh, that, that people are working with use, uh, use GPUs directly. And so uh, Batch lets us uh, schedule some of that. So you might wonder, like, why did we have to build all this software? Like, there are a lot of yellow boxes up there, and like, doesn't, isn't that what Batch is here to do to begin with? Well. There are some reasons for that. The first is our containers are very large. If you recall, uh, the onboard components, uh, you've got some operating system and these, these binaries, we've got models, we've got maps. All of that stuff needs to be available uh, when we run the simulation, because like, that's what the autonomy software uses. And so we, we, make, uh, we make a container, the simulation container, that has all of that stuff in it, but unfortunately it ends up being about eight gigabytes. So when you want to run 10,000 of those eight gigabyte containers, uh, this, this takes a long time, this is pretty expensive. The big, a big reason for the, that pain is Docker write amplification. And if you're not familiar with that, this is the problem where every uh, Docker pull operation uh, does effectively write your data twice. So first you have to pull the layer and it goes somewhere on your instance, like. Maybe it goes out to, uh, you know, to a file system on, on EBS, or maybe, maybe a, you have a you know, local you know, instance storage. Um, but then, when you extract it, you have to write the real version out again somewhere else. And for us, the best option we can come up with for that somewhere else is TempFS, which, if you're not familiar with it, is a file system in memory. And uh, it's the only thing that, that we could get uh, the reasonable performance out of these, these large images with this, with this uh, write amplification. And we, we amortized that cost of you know, having to spend memory on this by using the largest instances that we can. So M, M524XLs, and, uh, or you know, whatever, the, the largest ones that we can get. And so that way, there's only one area. You know, it minimizes the amount of, of TempFS uh, overhead that we, that we had to pay for. So the other problem that we have is there are limits in batch. At the moment, you can only run 10,000 you know, a ray job is maximum size of 10,000. And we need to run hundreds of thousands. So to work around that, that's where this tracker comes in. So what tracker does is it has a separate queue and it will launch possibly multiple batch jobs uh, that uh, like enough, enough to sort of, you know, execute the overall evaluation that we're, that we're working on. And the way that that works, oh yeah, well, I'll show you that in a second. So, so we launched multiple batch jobs. Another, another problem is uh, the, the task with, with these very large jobs, sometimes our tasks uh, don't, they, they don't always run, the same, the, run for the same duration. So sometimes they might take 10 minutes, sometimes they might take 20 minutes, or sometimes they may take two. 
And sometimes they might exit early due to, I don't know, bugs or they're just like failing or it's a bad software change. Remember, the point of, of running these simulations is to validate the software. And it may be that the software is bad. And if the software is bad, it might just crash right away or something. And unfortunately, what that does to batch is make a tremendous number of AWS API calls very, very quickly and uh, blows, blows through all of our rate limits. So to work around both the uh, both job size, task length, and um, the container size, we we built this tracker abstraction, which uh, which uses batch to effectively spin up workers. And the workers come up and they go to the tracker and they say, "Tracker, what should I do next?" And for so for a given evaluation, the the container is fixed. It has the system under test that we're that you know the software we're trying to evaluate. And uh, the, all of those containers are spread across possibly multiple batch jobs, and they, they all sort of drain the, drain the queue out of trackers as quickly as possible. So the other problem is it's pretty hard to tell what batch is doing, unfortunately. Uh, it's getting better, but uh, especially when you start running multiple you know, jobs spread across, uh, across multiple batch jobs, uh, it's really hard to tell what's going on. And I, I would say this is the, the place where we have spent the most time, uh, is just trying to understand like, what's, what's going on here. Because we produce, uh, we, so we produce a lot, of, a lot of artifacts. Some of those are for observability, and some of them are a uh, necessary byproduct of what the simulation does. So you know, every simulation produces another log and a bunch of other things, like we make a video of what happened in it, and uh, just there's a, you know, a bunch of metrics that come out of there. All of the components are all logging things, and there are some, some sort of lifecycle events that we use. Uh, we use Kinesis to tell Tracker how, the th how things are going. And so you know, we have like a stuck detector in there and uh, some other things that, um, so, so Tracker can kind of manage the, the overall lifecycle of this, of this simulation. But we had to, so, so we take all of these things and, we've, and we build a UI out of it. So this is, this is what the UI looks like the user-facing UI, so someone launched this, this evaluation, and they will, they will see something like that, and you can, you can drill into all of those scenarios and see the videos and the details. But uh, what I want to talk about is the observability. This is the sort of the, the admin UI that, that we built. And so we built this sort of this timeline, which shows, like, for that, for that evaluation that we were just looking at, like when all the jobs ran, how long they ran for. And so you can see, like, they're, they're they don't all, they're not all the same length of, uh, of runtime. And, you know, they, it's that, that sort of timeline view has been, uh, has been really essential to figuring out what's going on. Uh, so what, uh, the, the way that we did all this is, is we made sure that every component in our system uh, logs as JSON. And if it doesn't, uh, we convert it. And this even includes the, the AWS SDK that doesn't by default log, at least in the, the Golang one, doesn't by default log uh, as JSON, and we changed it so that it does. Uh, and this, uh, this works really well with CloudWatch, but it also lets you use all the other tools in the, in the JSON ecosystem. And so, uh, so this is an example of kind of the, the old style of human-readable logging that, that is probably familiar to most people. Um, it's like a, a message that a developer left for another developer. 
uh, that you know a human might interpret. Um, so the the sort of structured version of it, uh, you know, we would we would write out something like that. So it's it's easy to kind of aggregate and process later. But then we add in a bunch of extra context. So for all of the all of the events that get logged in our system, we have roughly that you know roughly all those things in there. So you can tell um, just. You can, you can figure out what's going on. You can make a UI like that or just also just drill into different problems. And so, for example, uh, if everything is logging as JSON, uh, you, can, you can use CloudWatch to figure out uh, across the entire system, across all of, your, uh, all of your runs, all of your batch jobs, how often, this is a, a graph of how often things got retried. And so you can see we had a little spike there for some reason that I hope, I hope someone figured out. But um, anyway, so... Uh, wrapping up here, the, the, there, have been, there have been some problems. You know, we've we've uh, you know, talked about the, the Docker thing, the ephemeral storage on ephemeral compute. So not a lot of great answers there. Um, it's really tricky in batch if you're, uh, and, and in Linux in general, uh, if you are running low on memory, if you're right up against your memory limits, it, you often don't get oom killed. Uh, so we, um, we, had to, we had to make ourselves a, a, an oom pre-killer to work around that. And unfortunately, the AWS badge is not that friendly for end users. Like, if you look at the console, like, it's sort of hard to figure out what's going on. And we just, we just had to build, build some tooling around that. And I know I'm, I, I, I'm told the console is going gonna, is gonna to get better, is getting better all the time. I totally believe that. But what I've definitely seen is the actual performance of batch has definitely gotten way better since we started using it about a year ago. Until now, I, I forget the, the multiplier, but it, it, is, it is much, much faster than it, than it was before, and it, it keeps getting faster. And in spite of all those problems, we still use Batch. Uh, we still use Batch because it handles this scale better than anything else we tried. Um, it's running 100,000 things is, is a hard problem, and not, not, a lot of, uh, not a lot of schedulers can, can handle that. And also, uh, I didn't, didn't talk about this too much, but uh, we, our, our engineers, often need to run some just ad hoc experiment on a thousand things. Like they tried something once on their workstation and they want to just run it a thousand times slightly differently. Maybe not even a simulation, maybe just something uh, to work with some of their data or you know, try, try something out. So we let engineers run these batch jobs from their, from their workstations and they, they do this um, pretty regularly to just run ad hoc experiments. So uh, another thing that, that you know, big, big lesson that, that we learned is uh, a lot of times uh, people would write benchmarks and they would say, let's see how fast this goes, or let's see what the limits are here. And they would uh, draw incorrect conclusions. They would say, oh no, it's way too slow, or it works this one way. And uh, we've, we have found again and again that um, any kind of benchmarks or testing or whatever that you might do, it's always best to validate that, those with the account team to make sure that you're testing it right or that you're drawing the, the correct conclusion. Um, sometimes, sometimes our tests were, were correct, but often, very often, it turns out there was something that they could change or if we would just do it a little bit differently, uh, that things would be way better. Docker sizes, right amplification is a bummer. Uh, add the pre-oom killer. Sometimes tempfs is the best choice. It seems weird to store your Docker data and memory, but Sometimes, uh, I think that is actually the right answer. Uh, log for the machine, not for people. And that's all I have. And then I think Steve's coming back. All right. Thanks, Matt. All right, awesome. So obviously, again, like I mentioned before Matt came up, one of the best parts of the job is a user who stretches us 
who tells us, you know, bluntly what, where we can improve, where we need to, you know, essentially says, so I, I don't want to, I don't necessarily want to be building these things on top of a batch, or I don't necessarily want to, um, you know, do certain things for you, right? And these are things that we as the batch team are working on and are going to improve, right? So again, Matt talked a lot about the console and some of the observability features. Um, we're gonna be investing some significant time next year into improving the batch console, right? And making it a lot easier. Um, we also are going to be integrating with Container Insights, which is a container level uh, metric um, monitoring tool, right? Which is um, going to provide job level metrics for you, right? Speed and scale, right? Batch, or Matt mentioned that Batch has gotten um, a lot faster, right? Since he began using it, um, probably about five-ish times faster than when he began, or a little bit more than that, than when he began using it, right? And we're always looking to improve the speed and scale, but also the reactivity, right? How fast does Batch react to jobs coming in and how fast it can spin up the instances and spin them back down again in response to events. Um, also better placement logic, but essentially overall, right, any improvement that batch makes is going to fall into the place of increased utilization, lower cost, and increasing scheduling fairness and dealing with multiple users and multiple workloads. All right, so that's all we have for you today. Thank you very much for coming. We're gonna remain for questions um, afterwards. So if you would like to ask any questions, just feel free to come up. Um, thank you very much. Don't forget to fill out the session.